1: Students ask, why do I have to study AI ethics? Why can't I just jump into how do I build this model? If you imagine AI as a very powerful tool, there is no difference between teaching building AI tools from teaching how people how to use a weapon. And if you ever take any weapon training classes, the first thing people teach you is safety, which is really understand how the weapon works and how much impact both on the positive and negative side, to people surround you. And that part is missing for a lot of AI technical training these days.
0: Hello and welcome to the Engineering Leadership Podcast brought to you by ELC, the engineering leadership community. I'm Jerry Lee, founder of ELC. And I'm Patrick Gallagher, and we're your hosts. Our show shares the most critical perspectives, habits, and examples of great software engineering leaders to help evolve leadership in the tech industry. In this episode, we explore the expansive and prolific career story of Lake Dai across her experiences in AI, venture, academia, nonprofits, and company boards. Our conversation covers how to harness AI effectively and compassionately. We also talk about why ethics in AI is non-negotiable and why it's imperative to start AI development with a safety check before implementing the technology. We get into the concept of co-parenting AI and its implication for engineering leaders. How to gain the right experience and demonstrate straight value in order to get onto a company board and a ton more different topics with Lake let me introduce you to Lake Die. Lake is founder and managing partner of Sankis Ventures, a VC firm focused on pre-seed to seed stage companies investing in the next generation of software infrastructure for applications such as distributed computing, AI model management, platform scalability, data privacy and safety, cybersecurity and more. Lake's been an adjunct professor of applied AI at Carnegie Mellon University since 2016. She was a keynote speaker on AI ethics, data privacy, real-world applications and AI education topics at the UN, UK Parliament, California State and leading tech conferences such as the MIT Conference and VentureBeat. Enjoy this conversation with Lake Dai. First off, I just wanted to say welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Happy Monday. How are you? What's going on in your world?
1: I'm super excited. This is the beginning of 2024. Senkus Ventures is about to raise our second fund. And I always joke with the founders is that many, many of them view like VCR in a different world. And I was I was sharing, look, you think about us as another startup. The only difference is we have to raise probably 10x more than you were raising. So the fun one, imagine that is the angel round. As a founder, actually everyone on my team were founders before. So as a founder, you're familiar with this, angel round you go with friends and family right and then the same thing as the first fund that you go with the network that who already know you and trust you and fund two is different fund two is your series a you have to show your traction you have to show that your strategy your go-to market you have to show your market fit you have to show some of the metrics that demonstrate that you are on the right track that's what we're doing right now. Super exciting. I would say 2024 or 2023 are now the best year for VC fundraising. You know, I hear a lot from the media and they say, wow, 80% of VC is going to die. I think we're gonna survive, and I think we're gonna thrive. I think we're positioned really well because Sankov Ventures always want to focus on the software infrastructure for the next generation of applications, particularly, for example, AI applications and blockchain applications. Um, so we made an investment uh, the first year we start making investment AI infra. You know, people can kind of tease us like, you know, why don't you do Web three? Uh, while you're doing AI? AI is dying. <laughs> The new future is a Web three. So when we did a tons of like AI infrastructure investment, and we we didn't really get much of a cheering clapping. <laughs> Around us, but we really believe in what we're doing. And sure enough, last year was big, big boom for AI, and some of our investments have been doing pretty well. And including, for example, one of the companies in our portfolio called AnyScale is pretty well known now because companies like OpenS ChatGPT, and some large models were all trained on their distributed uh, computing open source ray. And so all of a sudden, we got so many questions like, "Okay, were you investing in AI this year?" We actually didn't make that many <laughs> investments. The key thing is I think either is a venture investment or or taking your career path or building a company. You need to have a very clear direction. What are you building, and why you are building it, and look at it in the view maybe ten years, even longer, and not to be swayed by this year, next year. Otherwise, you know we're going to be investing AR and then AR and VR, you know, a few years back, and then blockchain and AI, and then Web three, and then AI again, and metaverse. There is not going to be a focus, and you're always going to be swayed by other people's opinions.
0: The last point you make, I think, is an interesting segue. And so I want to highlight for folks listening in, like, why I've been so excited for this conversation, because some people may listen and be like, oh, like, you know, Lake isn't the typical profile of an engineering leader that we typically have on in terms of like a VP of engineering title or CTO title. And so like some of the questions might be like, why this conversation and and what are we what are we covering and how's that connected to engineering leadership? And so here's why I've been really excited. Like everything that you have your hand in, I would say, is prolific. And so broadly speaking, like with some of the, the things that you're talking about here, I consider you an inspiration for, on one hand, aligning your career with your passion, your interests, and the areas where you deeply want to make an impact. On the other hand, like you just have some incredible experiences and stories like in the world of venture, in the world of AI and AI ethics, in the world of nonprofits, in the world of advising and serving on a board for companies, but also helping other people do all of those things. And so this conversation is going to be part, I think on one hand, like distilling some of those unique insights that you've had from those experiences. But on the other hand, it's it's also about aligning effort with impact and with passion and with interest. And I specifically wanted to start off with a conversation we've, we've never talked about. it's it's. it's in your world of AI ethics, people will probably have heard your bio at this point. You are a professor at Carnegie Mellon. You teach applied AI and also an AI ethics course at Carnegie Mellon. So the big question is, why should engineering leaders focus on AI ethics first?
1: It's a very interesting question because, you know, we have to answer the same question when students ask, why do I have to study AI ethics? right? Why can't I just jump into how do I build this model? How do I tune this model? And the reason is here, right? So if you imagine AI as a very powerful tool, there is no difference between teaching how people develop AI, AI applications or building AI tools from teaching how people how to use a weapon, right? And if you ever take any weapon training classes, The first thing people teach you is safety. So, well, actually, even before that, we want to do background check. We want to make sure that we're teaching the right people. And then what we want to do is do the safety training, which is really understand how the weapon works and how much impact, both on the positive and negative side, to people surround you. And that part is missing for a lot of AI technical training these days. I would like to also share a personal story as well in my early career. As you may know that I was head of Yahoo search engine back in the days. And then my team and then my personal, myself as well, we develop uh, the technology and then we have patents really surrounding contextual search recommendations. Based on what you have looked before and after what you've been searching in the past, we provide relevant advertising or content to you. So at the time, it was very noble goal as a product manager or or engineer lead. We just want to provide the product relevant to you, relevant to advertisers, so they will get more clicks and you have better content showing on your browser, right? But what we didn't do is we didn't do the safety check. We didn't look into if we develop a product or technology like this, what is required to continue to optimize this product? And what is the safety measure that we're putting there to ensure, for example, data privacy, to ensure that the algorithm is unbiased? So all these different safety check was not there and it never crossed our mind as well. When you complete a new world, everything's new, you're creating the rules. Nowadays, there is a lot of conversation, so-and-so company, so-and-so individuals are evil or not ethical. But I think a lot of actually, you can go back to the educational checklist is that do they have the tool set? Or have we been talking about the concept of developing tool set so everyone can do the safety check? Same thing, you know, another example would be, you know, back to a few centuries ago, a surgeon conduct whatever surgery they're doing. There's no whole set of checklists. Surgeons are supposed to wash hands. You have a checklist, different things. That's why the uh, fatality rate is pretty high. But now if you look into any hospital, there are very clear protocols, procedures. If you are going to conduct something really, really important.
0: I think it's so powerful, the, the experience that you shared about the noble intent of the early days of some of those emerging technology and how that impacted how different companies would then use that. And when you introduce the checklist, you can really start to guide or shape or provide guidelines around different areas. I think the examples that you shared in the metaphors, I think, are so spot on. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. I was wondering if you could share maybe lessons like from some of these experiences to help guide current and future AI development. Um, So like specifically for engineering leaders that maybe are working with this emerging technology and are really integrating it into their company and the different products, like, are there certain lessons that would be interesting or helpful for them in that part of their journey?
1: As an engineer leader, number one is that before you're building a product, you're probably going to have a pretty thorough conversation with your peer in the product management team. And sometimes even, for example, if there are business leaders and shareholders, you probably have that conversation with them already. Um, so before we determine how do we build this specific product, we probably want to go over what what are the end goals. You know, the KPIs currently are only targeted at business outcome. Are those KPI also included some of the metrics I was talking about? How do we protect data privacy? How do we measure it? How do we determine success? How how do we determine safe? Because all those measurements of success will go directly into our building process. That's the first step. And the second is, uh, let's say if you're an engineering leader and you currently are considering building an AI application, the whole process also, for example, let's say if you're building AI applications, the first process is to consider data. We cannot really talk about AI strategy without talking about data strategy. Where do we collect those data? Are we violating data privacy policies? Is there potential IP infringement collecting those data? Right now, when we talk about model training, we all know currently there are a few very high-profile lawsuits going on regarding IP infringement, copyright infringement in the industry. So when you're collecting those data for your model training or toning, have you considered those? So those are the checklists, right? Data privacy, potential bias of the data, and also, you know, IP infringement. And then during the whole process, when you select the model, when you tune the model, when you deploy the model, how that strategy that we just talked about earlier consistently carried in the process of building the application. Have you look into the data pipeline to make sure that you have checkpoints in each module right? each process. And then when the application has been developed, how do you measure the outcome? Again, we go back to the the let's say the shareholders, right? When we go back, look at all the KPIs. How are we doing compared to what we intend to do? If the outcome is significantly different, what is the you know rollback or follow up plan B? That's internal building process, right? And we also should be ready for third party involvement as well so when we talk about third party involvement we're not just only talk about column compliance government agencies you know certifications those are coming for sure but also, have we thought about internal auditing, like we do for financials, right? So any public company today that we have third-party audit and we have internal audit, which is a very independent department, have we looking into like do we have inter- like internal data auditing process that is separate from the organization building the product? You can't really check your, I mean, you can check your own bugs, but sometimes you just need a third party with different perspective and also different reporting line to look into that. So even though from one aspect, you can consider, well, this may slow down the process, but I think that in the long term, I think that the third-party audit will come. And to prove that you have, for example, the I, I call the data or AI ISO, ISO <laughs> standard, will eventually come, right? So if you are certified, then it is really helpful for you to be ahead of your competitors, particularly in the procurement process with, for example, public sectors and large private companies. Those are all really important process take place right now. And as infrastructure leader, we all know, so once you build an infrastructure, if you want to go back and remodel it, <laughs> it takes a lot of time and process. So when you design, let's say, think about you building a house, you think about the foundation, if you think about potentially in the next three to five years, what potential standard and requirement come in place, and you follow the process, and that may save you a major remodel in the next few years.
0: So I'm putting myself in the shoes of somebody listening to this and maybe they're mid roadmap or the late stages of delivering on their roadmap for different features. Like for somebody who's like maybe in the middle of this to introduce something that helps them shift their thinking or their application of this differently. Is there like a small action they can take or a question they can introduce that maybe if they're in the middle of their roadmap or in the late stage to help them address this differently?
1: So I think, uh, let's say if you're already in the late stage, I I do think that it's still important to look into the KPIs so I think the number one thing to do right away is to have a visibility what are you doing today and where for example let's say whatever the KPI or standard you want to create as part of the KPI where we are today so basically the step one is see where you are to benchmark and then the second thing is know who where you are at the current stage and number two is to benchmark with whatever industry standard at this point so that benchmark may be hard to do at this point because everyone try to explore what, what is considered the the new benchmark that being said i think keep yourself up to date on some of the newest discussions and uh, both with a company in the same industry but also with keep your open for the potential compliance requirement from both state and federal government is also very important. I'm fairly confident that we're going to have some new policy uh, released in the next couple months. So those are really important to, to keep an eye on it.
0: So zooming out, like to give some background context, a lot of the work and initiatives that you're involved in with this idea of AI for public good, um, with some of the things you're doing with benevolent AI, and some of the different perspectives that you have on how this technology is evolving and emerging. So I wanted to dive in specifically to your perspective on this idea of co-parenting AI as it relates to how this technology is evolving. So can you introduce us? What does the concept of co-parenting AI mean? And then maybe what are some of the implications of this for engineering leaders?
1: So last year, I've been traveling quite a bit, and I got invited to speak in uh, Middle East and South Asia, East Asia. Both, uh, you know, the government and then also large organizations. The biggest question they have is what's going to be the relationship between human and AI. I call it the war. Too started uh, sometime like in May last year. Is because that's just a few months after ChatGPT release, right? You know, while everyone was super passionate and excited about exploring ChatGPT, that also comes with a little bit of fear is that what does it mean for us? What does it mean for our jobs? And what if the GPT got so smart that it replaced human? And how do we control that effect? So basically, there were, I would say, two camps <laughs> talk about that. how we're going to perceive that. One camp was talking about, you know, this is going to be human versus AI, you know, almost like Hollywood movie that, you know, in the future, human is going to be fighting with robots, like, you know, all this different imagination, which I actually have is very solid foundation <laughs> on it. Uh, and then the other camp is saying that, look, you know, we have to work with AI regardless, right? It's coming. So why don't we just adapt human to see how we're gonna work with AI in the future? So you know, at the very beginning, I think the second camp probably make a lot more sense because there's in history there's no evidence shows that you can resist one new technology comes. You can resist as much as you can, but it's coming anyways. But by the meantime, I think that co-pilot or adaptive a perspective it sounds a little more passive to me, it means that we can do really that much about it, right? We can stop the development or we can just let it go. I think there is pros and cons. And I think we should really take a more, more of a leading role because in my point of view, teaching AI for a number of years at Carnegie Mellon, I really see the technology start evolving and taking off really, really quickly in the last few years. Backed by, you know, number one, parallel computing, particularly led by NVIDIA's GPU. Two, tremendous amount of new data collected on a daily basis. And number three is that the innovations in algorithm. That's why in the last 10 years, particularly last five, six, six years, we see so much developed developing AI. That being said, I think AI is still a little baby, right? Because at this stage... We just literally see a tip of the iceberg. And if you think of what we're doing right now, we're training AI, right? So AI training, and then we in- inference, which means that we ask the baby to, to uh, call back <laughs> the knowledge that we transfer over. But there's just so many things need to be done. Because if you think AI is a baby, and then eventually you're parenting this baby, the approach is very different. Because if you are a parent, the first thing you want to do when you have a new baby, is you want this baby to be upright person in the future. So aside of, you know, feeding the baby, nutrition, keep the physical health, you want to teach this baby and toddler the right moral compass. Make sure this is a person in the future, have integrity, have the right value. So what's the right thing to do? What's the wrong thing to do versus like, how is your math? (laughs) (laughs) right so so that's not how we parent if you think from that perspective the what we're trying to do today when we're building out the foundation models you are really teaching the math you're teaching english you have this baby taking english math class basically at at this point right you feed them as much information as possible and then you do the safety check which in this case is i tell them you're doing wrong you're not doing wrong But I think it seems to be a little bit more passive. Again, you want to go very beginning of tell, you're fitting the right information with, for example, compassion, with the value, uh, with all the human wisdom that we have accumulated over the decades or generations. So I think that is sort of missing at this point. It doesn't mean those data don't exist. There are so many different uh, uh, nonprofit organizations that have those, what we call the compassion data, and we can feed it to the model. And so that's part of you know why a few of us really started the organization called Benevolent AI last year. It's just through basically dinner conversation and we talk about what is missing in the current AI development and how do we really connect people to collect those good data, right? When we say good data data is not like good commercial data. We talk about good compassion, wisdom data to feed all those models. And the second thing is that the AI development today, there's so much money throwing to the founder community, talking about building commercial applications um, but ai can be doing so much good for public good that currently sometimes you know some of the categories are underfunded or sometimes their the efficiency can be significantly improved so one example could be education right so now we have quote-unquote ai teachers you can take all this knowledge, you can really spread it to the region that currently is short of staff uh, when it comes to teaching, or we just don't have the resources to go all village by village, region by region to teach those kids. So now you can create a very personalized teaching experience for those kids at much lower cost. So that is game-changing. How do we bring the problem, and, you know, well-defined by United Nations, SDGs, and and other organizations that we bring this to the builders to see, oh, you know, this is also interesting problem to have. And by the way, we have a lot of philosophers who want to fund AI for public good or AI for good. They just don't know who to fund, where to look, right? So I think what we're just trying to do is create that kind of environment, pulling parties from different sectors, from the founders to the people who are funding those nonprofit initiatives to partners, uh, for example, we partner partnered with New York Stock Exchange, we partner partnered with United Nations, we partner with some largest foundation in the world to really facilitate the kind of environment to let things happen organically.
0: I love this concept of focusing AI in areas that are underfunded or under-resourced the element you brought up is education. And I know you have some examples in terms of like state and city government, which is, I feel like an area where there's a lot of like either underfunded or under-resourced in a lot of different ways. And I think the other thing you mentioned with like the sustainable development goals is also really interesting because that's also an area that competes with resources. But then there's also a lot of coordination uh, and friction lost in terms of aligning a lot of different stakeholders to address certain issues. I was wondering maybe if you could share a little bit about some of those those examples where AI can be harnessed to address some of the societal challenges and helps create some of those positive outcomes, whether it's state and city government, the Sustainable Development Goals, um, would love to connect the dots on how to connect that technology to challenges.
1: Yeah, so we're still early in this stage, and uh, you know, when it comes to providing a very solid solution, but mm-hmm. I can share a little bit. So last week, I had a talk at California State. So California State has a CTO's organization, including hundreds of technology leaders from different sectors from the state. So you can think about, you know, the cities or healthcare and a number of, you know, from transportations to to uh, law enforcement to taxation, <laughs> tax board Right. So th- those are actually all the different use cases existing, in different public sectors can leverage AI. And we did explore a little more into, for example, the healthcare, right? How healthcare system, let's say, if we want to think about the u- potential use cases for AI application in healthcare system, they're just all different kind of use cases. Number one, you know, think about how do we triage some, uh, some early diagnosis for the patients who cannot afford to go to the hospital or cannot really have the capability to go to the hospital as often as they want the preventative health uh healthcare and the early diagnosis and triage it could be use cases A whole like Healthcare data management is, could be another use cases. Uh, if you think about patient treatment or the follow-up on the patients, that's the other thing, right? So, for example, there there's so many people are diagnosed for example, diabetes or high blood pressure. Those are other things that you can go in, have surgery, and be done with. How do you, uh, not just on the preventative side, but also post-surgery, patient out, uh, monitoring, those are all the things I apply to. And we are not even diving into, you know, potentially in the private sector, compound discovery, drug development, to clinical trial management, game-changing. Uh, when it comes to climate change, I can just give you a very interesting example. Let's say in different states. And then you have the native plantation, vegetarian, and then you have those invasive species, right? A lot of us have been to Hawaii in the past, right? Hawaii has been very, very uh, vocal about protecting the local vegetarian. But travelers going to Hawaii, they bring different things. What's happening is you have this Scientists taking hikes to all those different regions and to really discover, oh, this is an intrusive species and cut it off. And it's not really best use of those scientists' time. And think about the hikes that we talk to one one specific uh, scientist, and then we're like, okay, every day their life is like hiking a few miles. It's good for your body, but <laughs> it's, it's really hard to you know think about time to actually you f- maybe find one or two, or it has to be a trail in that region allow you to assess those area, right? But what can be done now is that you can send a drone and take all these pictures. And all those uh, scientists need to do is sit in there and annotate. And once you annotate and train the model, and then you can take satellite pictures and quickly identify what are, could be the potential intrusive species. And I can tell you from my human eye, I look at this, they're all green. <laughs> <I can't> really... <laughs> but imagine this is kind of life changing, right? So immediately you improve the efficiency significantly reduce the funding required for the project and also make it much, much shorter and efficient. Education already covered the use cases. Uh, so, for example, uh, one of the most recent conversations I had with Singapore uh, government is that Singapore government being a melting pot as well, so they have very diversified group And not all the group are getting enough of resources when it comes to education. And particularly when you think about those education needs to be personalized and specialized, right? When it comes to content customization. So they are really thinking about what are the potential AI tools can be used to design, customize, trace the education process they provide to the audience. And so those are all the things I think we're seeing, you know, when you bring really, number one, domain experts who have been working on those problems for generations, and then you bring the technologists who knows how to solve the problem, and you bring the funding, who can fund those developments, magic happens. As a builder, we really want to do something great, but we don't have a very clear understanding, because sometimes we don't have access to the domain experts. So now we have it, we just connect them
0: together. And going back to some of the parts of the earlier conversation, like what I'm thinking about this process for building, the intent to want to tackle the world's most ambitious problems, if you layer that on top of a foundation of ethics and like good stewardship of the technology or like being able to train the model, like from a a moral perspective, then you know that the outcome or the solution that happens is beneficial in doing good versus teaching like the math and the language first. You teach, you know, being good first. And then build on yeah. like the different skills and capabilities. Um, I think it's really interesting. Now we like following that all the way through to like the most ambitious problems to tackle. I think it's really interesting. Yeah,
1: it's, it's actually absolutely amazing. And the other thing I can tell you as a builder, knowing from day one what you're going to build will have some impact. Knowing that the people not using it not only are benefit from you know, efficiency, but also their data privacy are protected, and you feel like you're building something good. That feeling is amazing, rather than here is business back, and develop this product and deliver. It's totally different feeling.
0: So the beginning of our conversation, I mentioned, like, my impression is like, you are absolutely prolific. So we're gonna do a hard pivot to serving on boards. This is one of the biggest areas that a lot of folks want to grow. The perception is like, this is the extension of like the career pathway or growth for a lot of different people. And a lot of senior leaders in our community, this is kind of like the next expansion of like their contribution to different companies and organizations. This has been an area, not only you personally have been involved and have made impact as a, as a board member, but you've supported the journey of so many other people to join their first boards and to serve and and to support organizations in that way. Why is like becoming a board member or the board role something that's that's important to you? And what advice would you have for people looking to to navigate or who aspire to serve in that type of role? Like what would be some initial advice you might have for people?
1: Yeah, so uh, I get that question a lot. Uh, just to provide some context, I in terms of board experience, I have served on my past board appointments. I have seven board appointments uh, in the past and I have served at audit the committee, risk committee, technology committees of various companies across the field, such as consumer education, autonomous driving, neurotech, and bioinformatics. So a number of companies in the past. And currently, I'm serving on three boards. I'm the board governor of GIA, which is the world's largest gemstone and jewelry research education and certification institution. Uh, I'm a board director of a company called AI, and I'm also vice chair and treasurer of Benevolent AI. So that's the three positions I'm holding right now. And because I'm very involved in empowering in women to take leadership positions, particularly women on boards, I'm currently also uh, leading the technology group of Stanford Women Boards. Basically, we have over 700 members of board directors and candidates in my organization, actually including you know uh, some of the board directors from very well-known public tech companies, you know, which product we use on a daily basis. Going back, why do I want to do this? It maybe sounds a little bit cliche, but I really don't care about the fame. And sometimes the nonprofit boards don't really pay. (laughs) So it's not for pay either, right? I have to go back to why I'm doing what I'm doing right now. So I have three roles. I have the VC hat, I have the professor hat, and I'm also board director hat. But when I look at them, they actually all follow my compass direction. I have... Very clearly, you know, over, over the decades, and I developed like what are things really, really important to my life and what are things I'm doing that I full-heartedly enjoy and feel passionate about and feel happy about it. So there are just three compass. The first one is I need to do something follow my passion that is intellectual stimulating. So I need to have work on something and constantly learn and create and innovate. The second thing is I need to make positive impact because I think that's the source of happiness. And then number three is work with the people that you you admire, respect, and love to work with because that also, again, is a source of happiness, right? Because of that, I think... Board position really fall into this category, same as the teaching and, and investing, because number one, serving on the board, you got a chance to work with so many people from board governors and directors from different experience. is a great learning experience to hear different perspective discussions and debates even, right? So really learn to not just govern the company, but you learn from other board directors make positive impact. If you choose the right organization What you're really passionate about, for me, benevolent AI, GIA, they all like really align with my value. So the positive impact is absolutely there same as teaching and investing as well, right? So I kind of joke around like, look, you know, over the last eight years, no company doesn't have my students, right? So my students are everywhere and uh, VC as well, right? So if you got an opportunity to pick support and empower the right founders, you feel like you're part of their success as well. So that's basically, you know, quick summary of why I'm really into supporting the board you know, I want to be part of the board, you know, board experience and this is how I started my board journey. But in the meantime, I also think it was really important right now looking to board diversity. So we talk a lot about the board diversity and what does it mean, why board diversity really matter? The fact is look, if you want to make a change, you want to make a change from the top. We talk about a lot of the DEI initiative, but in the meantime, if the board is not diversified, right? If the board is not supportive uh, of specific like you know value then how would you imagine the team underneath would do something different, right? The tone starts from the top. Board is governance and is also serving. You're representing the shareholders' interest. Before I talk about how do we use that weapon, let's talk about safety and why do we want to do this, right? So board uh, position common with responsibilities, also liability as well. You can look look it up or just Google how many board directors got sued last year from public companies. You know, last year, pretty well-known cases at Silicon Valley Bank or, you know, potentially OpenAI board there. Basically, you can tell that there's a lot of responsibilities and potential challenges with the board governance. In order to serve on a board, you really need to get yourself prepared. Number one is that you, before you start a search, board search journey, make sure that you're well-equipped, you understand what's the board responsibility, what's the board procedure, and what, what is it not to. So, so those are the things. Fortunately, there are actually tons of board training courses now. Uh, so I can point a few directions. So for example, NACD is an organization that, provide trainings and certifications for corporate boards. In this case, a lot of public company boards. Um, So if you are aiming for public company boards, NACD is a great source to be. And then there are also organizations, uh, for example, focus on supporting women to get their four board seats, right? So, for example, an uh, organization called How Women Lead uh, is one of them. And then there are also number, number of uh, board initiatives. Deloitte has their own. I think JP Morgan has theirs. You know, some of the universities and not all universities. Like, for example, Stanford has it, MIT has it, uh, Harvard has it. So there are organizations that really help people to be able, not only well equipped on the knowledge they need to serve on the board, but also provide opportunities and networking opportunities. So I think that's the first one is get yourself equipped. The second one is, you know, I don't like the word networking <laughs> it sounds very commercial driven, but it is very important to let people know you're looking. You let people know that you're looking and I can just share how I got on different boards. Uh, first one, I think it was easy for me because I was a VC, right? So you make an investment, you get on the board. That is not something everyone can do. But it also shows that if you want to get on the board, the VC may potentially have worse positions. For example, uh, we have board seats that represent uh, common shares, typically are the founders or executive of the company. Now we have board seats for preferred shares. In this case, each round leading investor. Right. But sometimes we also need, particularly when company after Series A will might and most likely will have independent board director seat. So in this case, knowing the founder, knowing the investor may actually get you on the candidate list. And then, you know, there is always fine balance between let people know that you're seeking and overly aggressively approaching people for board seats so just this week i got actually two separate outreach from people that i haven't talked to for one is 12 years and the other like 15 years out of blue do you remember me i'm thinking about board position can you refer me to the, the company for six Right. So this kind of message is not going to do you any good because I barely remember you. We talk maybe for a few interactions. There's nothing I can vouch for you. So remember the best referral regarding border referral or even new job opportunities. The referrals always best come from the people who have known you for some time, have worked with you, have seen you in action that make that referral reputable. It's just a nowhere. So, you know, for the other example is that because I'm a CMU professor and every year I got inbound from people I know that say, hey, my my son, my, my daughter is applying for Carnegie Mellon. Can you please write a, re- a reference letter? And I just let them know, really excited, your your you know, your kids are thinking about Carnegie Mellon, but having me writing them a reference letter will actually damage their application because it just prove that they have no one they know well, willing to write the referralizer refer- for them. If you want to get on board through networking, you got to have the referral or you find out from the people who know you well can really strongly endorse you. Otherwise, it just looks weird and actually may not work in your favor.
0: Absolutely. So a, a couple of things stand out to me. So I think number one, when you talked about first focusing on the compass, right? And I think aligning anything that you get involved with, regardless of if it's a board or if it is like certain causes or initiatives, like running it through the compass first. And then you mentioned like governance and serving. And I thought the serving element was really interesting because I think like when you're thinking about like what boards to get involved in, if you're approaching it from the perspective of how can I serve like the mission or cause of this organization? And does it align with my compass that I've developed? Then there's a little bit stronger alignment And then I just love like I I, how I've labeled your last point is sort of like this idea of like balance your earnestness. If you're over aggressive and too earnest, then that can be kind of putting off. And I think just to validate I'm on I'm on one board, a small nonprofit board, um, shout out redirecting dance, Ben Needham Wood. And we do addressing and supporting mental health through dance, specifically ballet. But how I got connected to the opportunity is because Ben, who started this, uh, he's a choreographer. I had known him and we had connected because a lot of my role was like connecting folks that were doing interesting things together. And so he sort of saw me as somebody um, that he could rely on to like build relationships and connect with people that really align with like this passion, like for the cause of of the nonprofit. And so it was entirely because of like that referral. And because I had known him, you know, we weren't super close, but he knew enough about me and like the skills that I had that it would serve the mission um and so it was very much like that that relationship part
1: Well, i love that initiative
0: um, we have a lot of yeah. r- we're trying to do some research too so like there's some elements of observing and participating in dance that are understudied from an impact on like some of your biometric indicators so things like heart rate breath rate volume of breath which all impact like parasympathetic sympathetic nervous system i told you my background's in physical therapy so i can i can <laughs> this is one of the 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 holes i'll I'll jump down
1: do you see that how how it's just like Steve Jobs talk at a Stanford graduation is that in your life, you have experience here and there, and they all are dots connect you to where you're going to be.
0: That is very much how I felt about this. And I feel like you must feel the same way with how all of your, the different initiatives have come together with the vast areas that you're you're focused on.
1: In general, I think we, we all live our life, go back to the first question, live, live our life to the fullest. You want to be happy and what give you happiness is never really about a title, in my opinion. Never is about the title, never is about the monetary reward because it will not give you that level of sense of fulfillment, right? So find your compass is so important because it really leads you to do the right thing you know, people ask them that, you know, well, then if I'm going to do all nonprofit, I'm going to be really poor. I won't be able to do this and this and this can't live in Bay Area. I said, look, when you have a compass that as high level as this, you can easily find out 20 career paths and you just pick one that, that actually support your lifestyle. <laughs> right? So, you know, go back to your point.
0: Lake, we have a couple of rapid fire questions if you're ready to jump into those. Of course. All right. First question. What are you reading or listening to right now?
1: So what I'm reading is that I'm trying to read this art life book that my team gave me as a gift because I do want to live long. <laughs> so um, I do listen to all in podcasts quite often. Uh, that's the other thing that I pay attention to. Um, and I will say when it comes to podcasts, actually, I have tendency to lean more towards the books than long podcast the reason is i think a lot of books even like some of the classic books is really good to go back and visit and i barely read business related books because i i i think interestingly you know when i was younger i always focused on technology products and even business books because they are two sets very clear guidance tell you how to get from a to b and i can take it i can see effect right away but as i continue to you know advance in my career i become more and more interested in humanity history biography and all the things that when i in my teens i feel that as not that useful <laughs> <laughs> so sociology psychology i love those because you know what when you read enough you see pattern right away.
0: I love that assessment of how what you read changes as your career evolves, and the switch to humanity, history, biography. I love that. Okay, second question: What tool or methodology has had a big impact on you?
1: Can I actually change a little bit? I won't under- categorize a tool or method, but I would say Zen practice and meditation was life changing to me. I never planned it. I step into a Zen temple eight years ago by accident because i was looking for yoga class (laughs) so (laughs) it's between my two uh, career changes when, when i you know i was always being an operator and one week before i take my first day as a vc and decided i never take a vacation between jobs so that will be my first one week and would love to advance my yoga techniques. <laughs> so I was looking for all those different places. And then, uh, and then I found this temple called Jikoji in Saratoga. You know, I just glanced at it and it was like, well, $600 one week, including food and lodging and beautiful temple and you can do meditation. I was like, all right, I'm going. And without knowing, it was a silent retreat. <laughs> and then you have to sit there from very early to at the end to meditate. But that being said, that really allowed me to be Quiet and not to focus on anything else because honestly there's no Wi-Fi and phone didn't work. So you literally just sitting there quiet for a whole week uh, without making any decisions right? what to eat because food is provided, where to go is, you know nowhere to go, you're sitting there. Uh, what to do when your schedule is right there, follow the schedule. So when all this you know go go, go and execute things in tendencies, taking from your brain all you left was deep deep conscious subconscious emotions or thoughts that being buried for for years was surface and then eventually you just know how to let it go and then you have the experience like oh this is actually amazing experience you just want to go back and keep practice and honestly it, it really helped me tremendously not only just mental health but also physical health as well because you know when you're happy you're just healthier
0: so going back, I know in a previous conversation, we were talking about Jack Kornfield and, and how he's involved with beneficial AI. And so for folks listening in, Jack Kornfield also is extensively involved in this place called uh, Spirit Rock Meditation Center. They, yeah. they put on a number of different programs. So your your experience with that center in Saratoga reminds me like I attended this this event at Spirit Rock um, and it was a silent meditation retreat day. And one of the meditations was this walking meditation. So you just walked really slow and were conscious of, of each moment. And the mantra the the, what we had to repeat was nowhere to go, nothing to do, no one to be. And after a period of 45 minutes, repeating that over and over in my head, when you're talking about being quiet, focusing on yourself, not having to make any decisions. Just repeating, I have nowhere to go, I have nothing to do, and nowhere to be was like incredibly relieving in terms of anxiety, like it just removed the pressure. And that was like a big insight that I had in that moment.
1: Yeah, I think it's incredibly important because I think the world is just going to spin faster and faster. Mm-hmm. There's going to be more information, there are more things to do, and there's never enough time to finish all this. You know, if you were look, you're looking to business books, all it tells you is to prioritize, but the important thing is know how to let it go, which are very different.
0: Two more final questions. What is a trend you're seeing or following that's been interesting or hasn't hit the mainstream yet?
1: Going back to the AI trend right now, right? So there are so many people excited, are excited to talk about how AI can change the world. It's really urgent to think about how we teach next generation. Remember, you know, I don't, I don't know about you guys, but, you know, back in the days, I cannot use calculator in class. You basically have to use mental math, but who cares today, (laughs) right? Same thing as, well, what do we do? What do we teach next generation? Because all jobs, we're going to have some adjustment, right? I, I It's hard for me to think about one particular position will not leverage technology in the future. You know, think about ourselves, right? So you graduate from college for some time, me as well. And how much knowledge are you using today are from your college education? I would say no more than 40% for most people.
0: I would say, yeah, less so for me, because I, I, I was in the physical therapy world and I've deviated quite extensively. But to your point, yes, like very, very... No, not
1: for a board position. <laughs> <not> for,
0: <laughs> that's right. That's right. right.
1: So so I think I think what we're doing is that we, we got some training from undergrad and then we abstract that. We take a lot of learning and we're putting the new information, we develop the new knowledge, we continue to learn over time. So that's how learning or education should be forming in the future, which is, we're not just teaching the knowledge, which I think is easily accessible through GPT today, right? So, but how do you abstract that information? How do you transfer the knowledge from one industry to another industry, from one use case to another use case? The creativity, the connecting thoughts, and the emotional connections, intelligence are so important and still undertaught today. From all the way elementary to higher education these days, I think... That is something I'm super excited, I think is have not really been taught quite extensively as we talk about AI commercial applications, but it's so important. It's connected to every each of us. If your parents, you have to think about w- w- what your kid's going to do, what they're going to be, and what do you teach them to prepare this ever-changing environment, and even for us, right? So if you don't learn, if you don't adapt, you're going to be outdated. So the whole idea is that robot or AI is going to do all the work, you just relax. It's a, it's a great wish, <laughs> right? So I, a friend of mine actually asked me like, hey, you know, you were talking about robots going to do all the dishwashing and all the labor work and we could just focus on music and arts, right? So what I, which I said many years ago. Now AI is drawing all this great, generate arts on my journey and we're still washing dishes. What's up with that? So, you know, I think this is a very interesting subject to think about what we'll predict to, to be valuable knowledge so how do we retrain our current workforce, which I think have significant importance on social stability and mental health? And a lot of things that I think if we want this change, rapid change that happens smoothly and have less impact on people's life, and then we have to think about those ahead of time.
0: Is there a quote or a mantra that you live by or a quote that's been resonating with you right now?
1: So this is something I call it. it's called a beginner's mind. I don't remember specifically that quote, but I remember it says that in the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities, but in the experts, there are few. I think it's a great quote because it really guides us in many ways. So for example, it guided me when I designed, I was had a product. It really de- guided me design a product because many times we're building a product. Imagine we're the user, right? So you you carry that, the baggage there. If you think of as a beginner or completely remove your quote, unquote, expert point of view and immerse into your customer's role, then you can design much better product. The same thing as now I'm a VC and many times you heard founders that well, there's VCs come over and give you a whole lecture about how you should build your company, right? So even though we were builders before, we were founders before that we were being successful, doesn't mean that we can be successful in the current environment as a builder. If you have quite big success, become a really large baggage for you to think innovatively and also work with the founders. If you have a beginner mind, you have much better relationship, much more respect and much more open-minded to new ideas and
0: changes. A powerful way to close this off, Lake. Just wanted to to wrap up our conversation and say thank you so much for taking us on a journey through your world of what you're doing in venture and AI and AI ethics, all the way to the ways in which you think about supporting uh, at the board capacity. Um, it was a ton of fun and really appreciate your time. Thank you.
1: Oh, thank you for having me.
0: If you enjoyed the episode, make sure that you click subscribe if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or follow if you're listening on Spotify. And if you love the show, we also have a ton of other ways to stay involved with the engineering leadership community. To stay up to date and learn more about all of our upcoming events, our peer groups, and other programs that are going on, head to sfelc.com. That's sfelc.com. See you next time on the Engineering Leadership Podcast.